Let's pray. Father, we are completely dependent on you. You have given us your word, tells us how to live, what to do, what to think, what to believe, how to feel, how to love our spouse and how to treat others and how to treat ourselves and how to treat you. Tells us of what you've done for us. It tells us about who you are. And so we are dependent on your word. We are dependent on your help. So we ask not just for your word, but we ask also that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would reveal to us the meaning of your word so we can know you more and love you better, enjoy you more for your glory, for your honor, and for the exaltation of Jesus Christ. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So, Paul's letter to the Colossians, we've been in it for months. If you look at the whole letter, um, if you have your Bible in front of you, if you're using a paper Bible, it's easier. If you're using the, an app and you've got to do a lot of swiping, that's fine too. Uh, that's why I like my physical, actual Bible. There are verses that I know where they are just by location on the page. My memory knows exactly where it is. And then I try to find it in my Bible app and I'm like, I can't remember where that is. So use your real physical Bible as often as possible. Get used to your Bible. Holly bought me this Bible. I think I've shared this with you guys many times. Holly bought me this Bible on August 17th, 2005. Presented to Mark Barlow by Holly Allard. Not Holly Barlow. We weren't even dating at the time. She said, you're going to be a great pastor. So, still working on that. But, uh, have your Bible. So, I've been using this Bible for, was that, 17 years? Um, Get used to your Bible. Anyways, um, in Colossians, you look at the book, and you've got four chapters. Okay, And the first two chapters, they're very heavy. I think you would agree, as we preach through these first two chapters, it's heavy. A lot of doctrine, a lot of theology, mostly what's going on in the first two chapters. The reason there is a lot of doctrine and theology, a lot of head knowledge kind of information, is because the heresy that is attacking the Colossian church. We've talked about these heresies before. One of the primary heresies or false teachings that's invading Colossae is Gnosticism, And the Gnostics are all about knowledge and all physical things are evil and only spiritual things are good and holy and God is real but Jesus isn't really God and a lot of of false teaching and heresy and Gnosticism. And the Gnostics were intimidating the Christians, Colossae, with their false teaching, saying, hey, yeah, your gospel of Jesus Christ is good and all, but you need... You need more. You need to also do these things. Well, that's called syncretism. Syncretism is, think about it, this is the way I think about it, syncing together, mixing or blending either two or more belief systems. 
And so that ultimately is what was happening in Colossae. It wasn't just the Gnostics. Because in chapters 1 and 2, is Paul is dealing with a lot of heresy. So that's why there's so much doctrine. That's why there's so much theology in the first two chapters. Because he's addressing all the heresy that is taking place or that is uh, attacking the Colossian church. In chapter 1... Verses 9 through 14, Paul really deals with the Gnostics and talks about the significance of knowledge and what real knowledge is and what good knowledge is. And then in chapter 2, Paul starts dealing with other heresies, other syncretisms. In chapters 2, verses 8 through 10, Paul deals with pagan philosophies. Uh, that in the, the uh, chapter two verse eight, Christian had preached verses nine through ten. I had preached, but in that two week sermon series, you kind of see uh, the, the philosophy of the pagans kind of rise up, and and Paul deals with it. And by dealing with it, you've got a doctrinal problem because they're bringing a false doctrinal view of the gospel, and Paul has to correct it. And then in verse today's sermon, uh, today's text, verses uh, chapter two verses sixteen through seventeen, Paul deals with. Uh, legalism. In 2, 18 through 19, Paul will deal with mysticism. And then in 2, 20 through 23, Paul will deal with asceticism. So asceticism is essentially like this idea that have nothing of value on earth, be poor, that's true religion. And so if you're wondering, like, well, what, do, what do the Gnostics fit in that? Because I thought the Gnosticism was the real heresy in the, in the Colossian church. Well, Gnosticism fits within a few of these, primarily mysticism and asceticism. Uh, since asceticism is kind of have nothing and be poor and broke and have no value, and that's the way to be most religious. Well, the Gnostics believed that anything physical was evil, so to have things was to possess evil things. So they were kind of like have nothing kind of people too. So they were ascetics. They were also mystical, and there was a lot of uh, mystical philosophy in Gnosticism. The point is, of all this, is there is a bunch of different heresies that are rising up in the church, that are attacking the church, and Paul has to deal with all of them. So the first two chapters are just heavy doctrine, heavy theology to answer or, re- or, or respond to the false teachings that the believers are hearing. Because the believers heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus was born to a virgin, Mary, lived a perfect life, that he is fully God and fully man, that he died on the cross for our sins because we're sinners who need a savior. They rose from the grave, conquering sin and death, spent 40 days on earth and ascended to heaven and will return one day. That's the gospel they believed. And then someone else comes in, the Gnostics come in and say, well, that's true, but you also have to believe this. So you can have your gospel but you also have to believe this, that's syncretism. You can have your gospel, and let's add to it a different belief system, and you've got to believe all of that. And so what Paul deals with today in verses 16 through 17 is legalism, Jewish law, Jewish legalism. Because one of the other false teachings that rose up was the Old Testament law. Now, it's kind of silly for, us to, for me to stand here and say the Old Testament law is heresy, That's not what I'm saying, because the Old Testament law was exactly what God wanted it to be for the Jews at that time. But once Christ enters the picture, everything changes, and we'll see that today. But ultimately, what was happening is heretics were coming in and saying, oh, yeah, 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 you can have your Messiah, 
You can believe in Jesus, but you also have to follow Moses' law. You have to get circumcised. Or you have to participate in this particular feast. Or you have to do this particular sacrifice. You have to follow the rules on food and drink and what you can and can't eat. And you also have to, and then they start bringing back the Old Testament law into the life of the Christian saying, you can have your Christ, but you also have to do the law. That's legalism. And Paul addresses that legalism today in verses 16 and 17. And ultimately, what we find in, as, as the real answer to all the false teachings in, in chapters 1 and 2 the answer really is, culminates in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. I want to read them for you. What, this is what I think is probably one of the greatest chunk of Bible verses in the entire Word of God because it is so Christ-exalting. This ultimately is a text about the absolute, total, sovereign grandeur and supremacy of Jesus Christ. So listen to this, chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. He is, that's Christ, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the church. I'm sorry, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." That, Jesus, is the answer to all the false teachings. That Jesus is the answer. That text is Paul's real, final conclusion about all of these heresies that are invading the church. That Christ is better. And, ultimately, that Christ is sufficient. And that, I mean, I think for the for the church today, for us, we kind of look at that and we go, we know that Christ is sufficient. That We know that we shouldn't add anything to the gospel. Well, they didn't know that. I mean, they knew that in part, but the gospel was new to them. This was the beginning of the church life. This was, I mean, we, we have 2,000 years of church history behind us. We have, we have gone through just about all the doctrinal and theological debates that you could have about the Bible, and I'm sure there are plenty more that will come. And we've landed in certain beliefs and certain ideas and the basics of the gospel are pretty solid in, in most evangelical churches. So we don't really struggle with, is Christ sufficient? Is he all I need? Doctrinally, I don't think a lot of us maybe struggle with that. But that was a huge problem in the first century because they hear this gospel to new, they believe, and then someone else comes along and says, oh, you heard that gospel from Paul. Well, Paul is a Jew. Did you know that you should also do the Jewish things? And what that casts on Jesus is a lack of sufficiency. That his cross, his death, his resurrection wasn't quite enough. You also have to fill in the blank. And what Paul says is he makes peace by the blood of his cross. That in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That he reconciled to himself all things, all 
things. That he is the creator of all things. That in him all things hold together. There is nothing that Christ lacks in sufficiency. And there's nothing that the gospel of Jesus Christ lacks for the sufficiency of your salvation. And that is Paul's, that's Paul's home run. That's his take home. That's really the point he's trying to drive home to, all, and to address all these heresies. And, and he deals with them individually, but this is the answer. Jesus is enough. Jesus is better. Jesus is sufficient. The cross is sufficient. His death and resurrection is all that is needed for your salvation, nothing else. And when we get to verse 16, we see Paul deal with the specific legalisms that were attacking the church. And he says in verse 16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. So why is this legalism? Because these are all references to specific laws in the Old Testament. These are Old Testament Jewish laws. That's what they're referring to. And Paul's saying, don't let anyone pass judgment on you about those Old Testament laws. Because what was happening is these Jews were coming in and saying, you got to also do these laws. They were being intimidated. They were being pushed and shoved and encouraged and manipulated into, you got to do these laws. you got to follow these Old Testament laws. you got to follow laws about food and drink. you got to follow laws about the festivals. you got to follow the laws about the new moon, and you got to follow the laws about the Sabbath. If you're really a Christian, you'll still follow God's laws. And they're missing the whole point of the gospel. They're missing the whole point of Jesus, which is that he came not to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill it. So, legalism is running back to that law when that law has no need in our lives anymore when we're in a new covenant with Christ. And what legalism is basically is Jesus plus. That's legalism. Jesus plus. Jesus plus obeying the laws equals salvation. And that's legalism. And it's unbiblical. It's false gospel. It's heresy and sin. Now, legalism is not when someone stresses the importance of obedience or following God's commands. Because even in the New Covenant, there's plenty of rules and commands that we, are com- that we are told, commanded, ordered to obey. And we do need to obey those things. But obeying God's rules and laws and commands do not cause our salvation. Now, there is a little clarity that we could work through here on the reality that Jesus says in Mark chapter 1, verse 15... Repent and believe in the gospel. That's a command. There's two commands there. Repent and believe. So if you do that, you're saved. In order to do that, you had to obey that command. Which means your salvation is dependent on, a, on what I think a lot of us would call a work. An act of obedience. Because we believed Jesus' command. Jesus said, repent and believe. If we repent and believe, that's an act of obedience to that command to believe. So our initial faith to get saved is an act of obedience. So some people could look at that and say, well, faith plus the work of acting in obedience. So it's faith plus works gets you saved. So works do save you. But then we read Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. It says we're saved by faith through grace, not by works. So we've got a little bit of a conundrum, and I think that conundrum is answered in this reality that the believer 
who puts their trust in Jesus Christ is acting in faith because what Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 does tell us is that it's not works, but it also tells us it is faith and that faith is a gift. So with the gift of faith that the Holy Spirit gives to those whom, whose hearts he's regenerated, with faith we respond to the gospel. And that gift of faith we receive is not an act of our own, is a gift of God, so that no one can boast in their faith. So that our boast is, as Paul says in Galatians 6, in the cross of Jesus Christ only. That our faith is a gift from God that we use to respond to the gospel. That's not a work that causes our salvation. That is an act of obedience in response to being saved by the Spirit's regenerative work in our hearts. And so there is no work that causes your salvation other than the Holy Spirit's work. And that eliminates any idea that we are providing any work or act of obedience that causes our salvation, but that it is God who does it, according to Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. And so that's important to understand because what happens after we're saved is we start this process of sanctification. The sanctification process is a life of following the rules. So Paul stands here and says, following the rules, he just, he just really drives this home. That's legalism, legalism, legalism. If you think following the rules and obeying God's law is going to get you saved, you are wrong. That's legalism. It's heresy. It's false teaching. It's evil. But then once you get saved, he says, follow all the rules. Because... For those who are in Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit, and in the Spirit, He does a work on us, this spiritual growth process called sanctification, where He is constantly forming us into the likeness of Christ, and Christ is the perfect obeyer. He's the perfect man. He perfectly obeyed, and we're becoming like Him. So now that we're saved, we need to obey, but that is not causing our salvation or maintaining our salvation. It is, as Jesus calls it, fruit of your salvation, evidence of your salvation. So now we obey, now we seek obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit because Christ saved us. And so in the Colossian heresy, you've got these Old Testament rules that are getting twisted and brought to the church and they're being told you've got to believe these, these laws and these rules still to be saved and it's a false gospel. So essentially what these heretics were teaching was faith in Christ was fine and all, but you also needed to follow the law to be saved as well or to stay saved as well. And we see Paul answer that in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, that text I just read for you, that Christ is sufficient. And that his sufficiency to our salvation means we don't need anything else other than belief and faith in him to be saved, meaning all we need for salvation is Jesus, and in Jesus, we are complete. So complete that in Romans 8, Paul talks about our future glorification, and he uses a past tense version of glorification, because that future thing that hasn't happened to us is already secured if you're in Christ. That's how sure your salvation is. That's how complete we are in Christ. And because we are complete in Christ and in no need of additional works of the law to finalize our salvation, Paul says in verse 16, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. The, the rules of man do not judge us. I think we live in a culture and a world, I think this has probably existed forever, 
And I think for us it feels more prevalent now because we're the ones living it. But the reality is we live in a world where all we want to do is please man. And, and I think everyone here knows that feeling. There's oh, this just innate desire in us, like a crippling effect in us that is like a desire to please people. And some people, more or less, some of you are like, I don't care what other people think. I know a lot of people who, who, who constantly talk about, I don't care what people think. And they say things out loud that you're like, the audacity to say things like that out loud is, blows my mind. You know, I would never say that out loud. These people would hate me. I couldn't live with myself that way. And I hear some people just love to kind of like, I don't care what you think. And I, I'll, honestly, all I see there is an insecurity so great that they actually do care what people think. And they mask it with, I don't care what people think. Ultimately, we all care what people think. I mean, you came here wearing clothes today, didn't you? Why don't you just come in your pajamas? If you don't care what people think. Someone told me the other day, you should wear shorts when you preach. I was like, I care, I care too much what people think. <laughs> so, ultimately, we all, and it's totally fine and normal to care what people think. I mean, we have a social obligation to live within our culture and society and to follow certain cultural stigmas and rules that are maybe spoken or unspoken, right? On Sunday mornings, you dress nicer than normal, maybe, okay? Uh, things like that, you know, but, but ultimately, I think we live in a world or we live in a mindset that what the world thinks of us is really important. Jesus didn't have that mindset. Did he care of what people thought? Well, certain people... Did he care about people and have compassion on them and for the ways that they thought? Absolutely. But when he stood before Pilate, or when he was accused of sin and accused of blasphemy and accused of being Satan, was he like, no, no, I'm really not. Was he, concerned? Was he insecure? No. He's like, actually, I'm not full of Satan. You are. Like, his, he was so sure of who he was. He wasn't worried about the judgment of man because he knows his father so well. And that's part of our desire in getting to the point where we have and, and wear and think with the mind of Christ. And with the mind of Christ, we start to think like Christ. We start to think more biblically. And with the mind of Christ, we know the Father more. And the more we know the Father, the more sure we are of who He is. And the more sure we are of who He is, the more sure we will be of who we are in Christ. And the more we'll know who Christ is. And the more I know who Christ is, then the more I know the guy who lives within me. So I don't have to worry about who I am or being who I think I need to be. I just need to be like him. And the more I am like him in nature and in character and in personality, the more the uniqueness that he made in me will shine out of me and reveal him. We don't live by the judgments of the world. We don't care what the world thinks about us. Christians have to have a little bit of that in your mind. I'm not concerned what the world thinks about me. I can guarantee you there's a couple things they will think about you, at least one, that will hate you. And if you're thinking, well, the world doesn't hate me. There's not a lot of non-believers who hate me. The world doesn't seem to really hate me. Well, Jesus said, if they hated the master of the house, how much more will they hate the servants? And they murdered the master. What do you think they want to do to us? I mean, that's the enemy, Satan. That's his aim. To kill you. He's a lion seeking someone to devour. Seeking to kill. 
He lies in wait under the tall grass and we walk right by him and he pounces on us from behind because we don't have the awareness that Christ has. And we fall for sin. Because Satan doesn't just jump on and go, ha ha, I'm Satan and I'm here to trick you. And we're like, oh, I know better than this. I'm not going to fall for this one, Satan. He's not that dumb. He's, you realize he knows the Bible better than you do, right? He knows the Bible better than you do, but he doesn't believe. So the Bible tells us that even Satan and his demons believe they don't fear God like we do. And so his tactics are a little more clever. Sneaks up behind us. One of the ways he does that is heresy. False teachings of the church. He raises up what, what, the, what John calls in 1 John, antichrists. They're pre-antichrists to the one antichrist. And so there's lots of, lots of antichrists who invade the church, whether it's a preacher whether he's famous or not famous, or whether it's someone in the church who rises up with their false teachings or heresies and mixes those into the church and confuses the church with false doctrine. And that's one of the ways that Satan gets an entire congregation off kilter and leads into sin. And then he also does a lot of work in your personal life, creeping up behind you, whispering things in your ear, manipulating the way you think, manipulating others into manipulating you. There's a lot to be... That's why Jesus says, be wise as serpents but gentle as doves we have to know the way the enemy thinks and why do we know how the enemy thinks the enemy thinks about the word of god he uses this against us so we need to know it to have the mind of christ which is greater than the mind of the enemy greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world that means christ in you is greater than the enemy so we need to be like christ and have the mind of christ by knowing the word of god and that's what Paul's essentially getting to here with this legalism. If you know the Word of God, if you'll understand what the Old Testament laws and what the New Testament, New Covenant relationship with Christ is, and you won't fall for this legalistic heresy. And you won't have to worry about the rules of man judging us because men don't judge us. God's Word judges us. So in the freedom that we have in Christ, we should not give up that freedom to be chained back to the law again. In Romans 10.4, Paul says... For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. If you believe in Christ, the law is done for you. It's fulfilled for you. You don't have to fulfill it yourself. Christ did. So in Christ, we have been freed from the demands of the law, and we now live in a new law, and that new law is the law of the Spirit. Romans 8.2 For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That's the Old Testament law, because it's a law of sin and death. So the law no longer has reign over us, nor are we subject to the law or to man-made rules about salvation. To adhere to those laws is dangerous for many reasons. I think one of the most important reasons that, uh, that legalism is dangerous is that anyone can act good. Anyone can pretend to be morally good. Anyone can put up a front or put up this facade or wear this false mask of holiness and kind of just like walk through the motions and behave like you're a Christian and do all the right things and go to church occasionally and write a check sometimes and attend a few studies and do, you know, do these things and, and you know, act, you know, 
act like a, a good husband or wife and oh, act like a good parent and try really hard on the outside, but inside there's no heart change. And eventually you can't pull that off for very long because eventually, according to Scripture, you fall away. And so the, the hard thing there is that we can be deceived by people who say that they're Christians but aren't. And we see this all over the New Testament. People claiming to be saved who then eventually become, eventually it's revealed that they're not one of us. They looked like us, they acted like us, they joined us in worship, they said the things that we said, and by all accounts, everybody thought that they were saved. So behaving saved isn't salvation. Trusting in Jesus Christ to pay for your sins is salvation. And that happens in the heart, not outwardly. What happens after that happens in the heart is an outward expression of that, which is what makes it so hard to identify the difference between a genuine believer and a false convert. You've got to remember 1 Samuel 16, 7, when, Jesus, or, uh, when Samuel was looking for the next king. All of David's brothers were like, the perf- they were all king material. Big, strong, and handsome. God's like, no, that little shepherd boy over there taking care of the sheep. And the brothers are like, Pfft. His dad's like, Pfft. Samuel's like, that guy? God's like, anoint him. And he says in 1 Samuel 16, 7, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And what God reveals about David's heart later is he is a man after God's own heart. That's all you need. That's all you need. You don't have to be big and strong. You don't have to be handsome. You don't have to have seven skills of leadership. Every time I go to a pastor's conference, it's like, how to be a better leader. I'm like, how about how to be a better shepherd? Can we address that? How to know God's word better. Like, it's just, there's so many ideas about what it takes to be a Christian or what it takes to be a good leader or what it takes to be a good pastor or what it takes to be a good husband or a good father or a good wife or a good spouse. What are all these things? How to, how to be a good manager of your business. All we need in our life for everything in your life is how to be more like Christ. That's it. You want to be better at your job? Be more like Christ. He would make... He would be so good at your job. He would be the best employee ever. He would be so good at every job in the world better than any of us. Because he'd be so dependent on the Holy Spirit. He'd be so spirit-led, he would do everything right. He would do everything well. So whatever your call in life is, wherever God's called you to, to be, to live serve the job you have I'm not saying don't develop the skills of your trade of course that's important that's great and all but the most important trait to have for your work life and for your marriage and for your parenting and for your relationships and for your involvement in church here is to be like Christ that's it because if you have everything else and not that it's insufficient And if you have Christ and nothing else, it's sufficient. Now Paul's primary concern was that the Colossians were being intimidated by these legalists 
And you can see that intimidation exists by the way that Paul responds in verse 16 when he says, let no one pass judgment on you. Meaning, don't let these false teachers push you around with their false gospel and their false teaching. Christ is sufficient. Do not sacrifice your freedom in Christ for the bondage to the law. And don't let these false teachers convince you to do so. Stop being intimidated by their legalism. Stop letting them use the law, which you know is important to the Jewish, to Judaism. You know it's important, and they're manipulating you with the importance of what the law has been to the Jews for thousands of years. And suddenly, you're told that in the new gospel, in this gospel of Jesus Christ, you don't need that law anymore because Christ has fulfilled it. And they're telling you, whoa, 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 this law has been around for thousands of years. And they manipulate you and intimidate you into believing this law. So stop believing the law. Stop believing, don't let them intimidate you or push you around and stick to the gospel. And the false teachers taught the importance of following ceremonial laws from like Leviticus 11 about food and drink. That's what Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you concerning food and drink. Those food and drink laws were created by God for Israel so that they worked, as they kind of worked their way into the promised land and worked their way throughout their history in, in the, and they move into lands that have nations in them, and these nations, these other nations are pagan, uh, false worship of false gods and cultures of a variety of different kinds of sins. As the Jews moved in, God wanted to set his people apart from the surrounding nations. And the way in which he sets them apart is the law. So he gives them specific laws. You can't eat camels and pigs and badgers and rabbits. You can eat crickets and locusts. Uh, you can't eat mice and rats and moles. Just all these specific, weird, you know, we look at this and go, why? And is there, like, practical reasoning to some of that? Maybe. I'm sure to some extent there's practical reasoning to every one of God's laws. But the reality is the reason those specifics in those laws exist about what they can and can't eat, what's clean and what's unclean food, is that God's like, because I said so. I mean, that's all it really comes down to. He, could, he, he said, like, animals that chew the cud and are unhooved or whatever. I forget the specific about it in Leviticus 11, but like he could have just been like, well, you know, uh, how about uh, all the animals that um, tread out the grain? Uh, those are the ones you can't eat or whatever. Like he just picked what he thinks is best as the law, what you can and can't eat. And because he decides that that's the rule, that's the rule, period. And I think in my years of preaching and teaching, I've heard a lot of Preachers and pastors talk about the reason that God made this law is because you can't eat pigs because pigs have worms and worms are bad for you. So he's helping Israel with their diet and that's the reason. I don't think that's the reason because you can't do that with every law. So he just creates a standard of living. You can do this, you can't do that. You can do this, you can't do that. You can't, and there's hundreds and hundreds of laws which you can and you can't do when you can do it when you can't do it what happens when this happens kind of laws and the reason there's so many of them is because it's impossible to follow it's impossible to get right but god gives the people of israel these food and drink laws in addition to many other laws to distinguish themselves from the surrounding cultures the surrounding cultures absolute self-indulgence have whatever you can get your hands on. However you get your hands on it, too. 
If you need to murder someone to get your hands on it, that's the, just the way that it is. And if you get it, it's yours. And if someone kills you for it, then so be it. Got what you deserve. Just get what you can get. And when you get it, you get to have it. Just total indulgence. And God's like, my people will be different from the rest of the world. They will be a different culture. I need to set them apart as holy and unique from the rest of the world. So I'm going to give them these rules that they have to follow that make them look different. And the Jews go, we don't eat pigs. And the rest of the world goes, you don't eat pigs? You never had bacon? (laughs) So... It sets God's people apart as we are following the law of our God. And then their adherence to that law, which is their holiness, their obedience, reveals the nature of God, reveals to them the goodness of God to set his people apart, which ultimately reveals how God is set apart. And so that was the intention of the law, to set God's people apart. But we no longer need the law to set us apart. Because we have Christ who sets us apart. And we have the indwelling Holy Spirit who causes our obedience in us through our sanctification to make us holy. And in that continued holiness, we are set apart from the world to reveal God through Christ in us. So we don't need the law to be set apart anymore. We have Christ who sets us apart. Now we operate in Romans 8.2 in the law of the spirit of life. And the law of the spirit of life is that you don't need to follow the law to be holy. You need the Holy Spirit to be holy. You need Christ to be holy. He sets you apart. And then the life you live is led by the Spirit according to the Word of God. And the Spirit encourages and causes and endures for you and through you all the commands of God so that you do them. And that holiness that He produces in you sets us apart from the world. So when the world goes... I do this thing, we go, I don't do that thing. And not that we're like separatists. I'm not saying we should be like hardcore fundamental people who just separate from everything in the world. Not at all. We're still involved in the world. We're still a part of the world. But there are clear commands in the Bible about what we can and can't do as believers. And we set ourselves apart by obeying God's word and not the world. Because we don't have to please people, we have to please God. And additionally, concerning food and drink, Jesus had already canceled those ceremonial food rites. In Mark chapter 7, verses 18 through 19, Jesus said, Whatever goes into a person from the outside does not defile him. Meaning, whatever you eat doesn't defile you. Because it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and then it's expelled. Thus, he declared all foods clean. And we see this later, too, in Acts 10 when Peter has a vision and God says Peter kill and eat that's a command for those of you who love hunting there you go go kill and eat when people tell me that when people are like animal rights activists I mean I'm all right I'm all for animals having like you know being safe or whatever Um, I I don't understand why we would put a bunch of energy into saving animals when there are babies dying. But um, I do think that we should treat all living things as if they were God's creation, including animals. But when people are super hyperactive animal activists and say you can't kill animals because they have feelings and thoughts and, and I just think of Genesis 6 after the flood, God's like, 
Eat whatever you want. Kill that. The cow is for you. Eat it. And then he verifies it with Peter. Kill and eat. It's for you to have. So, I'm a meat eater. I hope you are too. If you're not, that's fine. <laughs> that's your life choice. But, the Bible has clearly, Jesus and Peter and other texts as well, have clearly validated our ability to eat whatever we want. That there's no ceremonial rules anymore, legalistic rules on food and drink. So again, Jesus refers to God's concern, not with external things, what you're eating, but with the internal condition of the heart, meaning it doesn't matter what you eat or drink. What matters is where your heart is at. And that is the heartbeat of the gospel over and over again because Jesus shows up on earth and he starts talking and sharing and preaching. You see it in the Sermon on the Mount over and over. He says, you've heard it said this, but I say this. And every time, almost every time he does it, he says, you've heard it said, and he says a law. He says an Old Testament law or some sort of misinterpretation, their misinterpretation of a law. You've heard this said, but I say this. You've heard don't murder. Well, yeah, it's, it's one of God's laws. And Jesus says, but I say that if you hate your brother, you're just as guilty as murder. Because what the murderer does with his hands when he murders somebody is the external action. And what Jesus is saying is it's what's in the heart that killed that man. The heart led to the physical action. So the heart's the problem. So Jesus steps back and says, the man who murders and the man who doesn't murder but hates are in the same boat. They both have a heart that hates. That's the problem, the heart. And it's the same, same thing with the law. It's not the actions of the law that matter. It's the heart that matters. So Jesus flips the script on Old Testament law and says the new law is the law of the Spirit which is all about your heart. And I think as Christians, that's really important for us to think about because we have, we can have, and many times in our lives, very, very wicked things going on in our hearts and in our minds, but we show up at church and we go to do this and that and we act like everything's okay and I'm a good believer, but deep down inside, we are dying with sin. No one sees it. Why? Because I care what man thinks too much. So I'm going to follow the rules or look like I'm following the rules, but my heart is a disaster. You can't hide that from God. He knows your heart. He knows it better than you do. I think if we practiced more regularly being on our face before the Lord, and I, phys I mean physically, on the ground, face down, physically expressing a broken humility before God more regularly, he would start dealing with some of those heart issues. And we would be healthier and happier. Now Paul also tells the Colossians not to let anyone judge them or intimidate them concerning festivals or the new moon or the Sabbath. Again, all Old Testament laws. The new moon refers to the first day of the month where they would always have these ceremonial sacrifices. And then the festivals refers to many festivals such as Passover, Pentecost, Feast of the Tabernacles. These are all, you find these in Leviticus 23. But this is where we need to make a, a clear distinction about something important. There's a difference between something about what Jesus did. When Jesus comes to earth, Jesus' relationship to the law. There's something really important we have to understand about it. 
that there is a difference between abolishment and fulfillment. Abolishment and fulfillment. In Matthew 5.17, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus is teaching that the law still stands while he still stands. Well, Jesus is alive on earth. He is living by the Old Testament law. And he's living it perfectly, which none of us can do, and no one before him could do. And once he dies, the demands of the law still exist. Except in his death and resurrection, we can put our faith in him, and his credit of obedience to the law becomes our credit. So the requirements of the law are not gone, they're just fulfilled. They are not abolished, they are fulfilled in Christ. So the gospel then becomes the thing we proclaim instead of the law of God. We don't have to tell people that the law still exists and that they can either choose Jesus or choose to obey the law. Choose your own adventure. You guys remember those books? Choose your own adventure books. Love those as a kid. Okay, choose your own adventure. You can follow the Jesus route where you don't have to obey the law, or you can go the law route and you do have to obey the law. Both can lead to salvation, but you got to pick one, and if you go the obedience route, you better be perfect or you're going to die. And what Paul says in Galatians 3.10 is, if you go the law route, you die. You're cursed by the law. The law is a curse. Why? Because the law was never intended to save you. The law was intended to show you that you can't be saved by the law or by your obedience or by your good works. The whole point of the law is it's impossible to obey so that you would say, God, then what am I going to do? I need help. Will you save me? And he says, yes, in Jesus. It's the whole point of the law, to point you to your inability to meet God's standards of holiness and then your absolute need for Jesus Christ. And Jesus didn't abolish the law, he fulfilled it. But then we have this problem in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul saying in Ephesians 2 that Christ uh, broke down the dividing wall of hostility, verse 15, so Ephesians 2.15, by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances. So now we have a conundrum because Jesus just said that he didn't abolish the law but fulfilled it. And now Paul is saying that Jesus abolished the law of commandments and ordinances. So what is Paul teaching? What Paul is teaching is not opposite of what Jesus taught. Paul is teaching that in Christ, by his fulfillment of the law, we no longer have to practice the law. The law came with many ordinances and commands and, and certain Practices of certain rituals, such as the festivals and things you can and can't eat or whatever. But really, it's these ceremonies. These, you know, the new moon, every first of the month you have to sacrifice and be at the Feast of Tabernacles and be at Passover and do all these certain ceremonial activities that the law requires. And what Paul is saying is now that Jesus has fulfilled the law for us, there's no need to participate in these festival, festivals anymore because they are abolished. Our our command to do these ceremonies is abolished because the law is fulfilled in Christ. And just as the gospel frees us to eat and drink as we please, so also the gospel frees us from the demands of ceremonial laws to please God because we have in us him alone who pleases God, Jesus Christ. And then regarding the Sabbath, 
The Sabbath was a sign. It was a covenant sign between God and his people. And we're no longer in the old covenant. Circumcision was the sign of God's covenant with Abraham. And the Sabbath was, God's, was the sign of God's covenant with Moses. And the signs were intentionally meant to do, as we said before, set God's people apart from the rest of the world. But in Christ, we're in a new covenant. And the new sign of the new covenant we talked about a couple weeks ago is baptism. That's the new sign of the covenant. That's the sign of our new covenant in Christ. And that's our outward sign of being set apart from the world and for God in Christ. So the demand to follow the Sabbath no longer remains for those who are in Christ. And Jesus himself becomes our Sabbath. He becomes our rest. He is our practical, daily, real rest today in this life. And ultimately, any rest we get in Christ today is ultimately serving a greater, better reality that in the future, this is according to Hebrews, there is a better rest, an eternal rest in him. That's what the Sabbath has always meant to be. The Sabbath in the Old Testament was always meant to point you to Christ. He's the Sabbath rest. He's the eternal rest. In him, there is a Sabbath that remains forever. Perfect rest and peace in God. And it comes through Christ. So the Sabbath always was meant to point us to Christ because Jesus said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And so, being the Lord of the Sabbath, he's the Lord of rest, and he points us to our eternal rest. Meaning in Christ there is eternal hope. So there no longer remains for those who are in Christ like a day that we have to set apart, a day dedicated to God because with Christ in us, Romans 12, 1 through 2, our lives become a daily living sacrifice which is our spiritual worship. That doesn't mean you don't take a day off. It doesn't mean you don't take a physical rest from work. It means every day is a living sacrifice, a sacrificial spiritual worship. So what are all these things compared to Christ? What should believers not be intimidated? Why should we not be intimidated by legalism or be pushed around by legalism? Why, do we, why should we not follow the Old Testament law or follow all the rules so strictly and adhere to Old Testament rules and laws? Number one, it's a curse. But number two, because what Christ is compared to those laws what are food and drink and festival, new moons and Sabbath compared to Christ? Well, Paul answers that as his foundational reason for why we are no longer bound to the old covenant realities and for why believers should not be intimidated by false teachings of legalism. In verse 17, he says, These things, so these things are food, drink, festival, new moon, Sabbath, the law, these things are a shadow of the things to come. These things are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. None of these things hold a candle to Christ. These things had one purpose, and it was to show how impossible it was to follow God's law. And that impossibility revealed our need for a new way out, a different way out. The law's not going to save you. Faith in Christ saves you. We see that all the way back in Genesis. When God talks to Abraham and tells Abraham, I will produce through you a seed that will bless the nations, and Abraham believed God, and in Genesis 15, God says of Abraham, he counted his faith as righteousness. From the beginning, we are saved by faith. 
You believe God's promise. He believed God's promise of Messiah. It wasn't the full picture of the Messiah. Abraham doesn't know. Abraham did not know what we know today. But he believed all that God had revealed him about the gospel, about the Messiah, about salvation. And in believing, it's counted to him as righteousness. That is salvation. Salvation has always been through faith, not by the law. The law was intended to reveal to us our inability to be good enough and our need for a Savior, for a Messiah, and that is what makes Christ so beautiful, is that he rescues us from our incapability of saving ourselves. And these laws are a shadow. Christ is the substance. A shadow is never what it appears to be. It cannot be substance. In fact, a shadow is the absence of substance completely. It, it exists only because the substance exists. Meaning the shadow is dependent on the substance. The law is dependent on Christ. We are dependent on Christ because the law is not enough. A shadow cannot sustain you. A person can. A shadow is the negative of the substance. It's shaped like the substance. It looks like the substance. But it will always be lesser than the substance. And it will always be an unfulfilling version of what the substance provides. Provides. So the shadow or the law was only ever meant to tell us that there is a substance to this shadow that is far more valuable. So when Jesus stands in front of you, will we bow down to a shadow and worship a shadow? No. For two reasons. Number one, in heaven there'll be no sun because Christ is the light of heaven. And if he's the central point of light, he can't have a shadow. I always thought that was interesting. So he literally won't have a shadow. So we can't worship his shadow. And number two, even if he did, why would we? That makes no sense. We wouldn't want to worship his shadow, which means we don't want to worship the law. We're not going to come to Jesus in heaven and be like, ah, Jesus, thanks for dying for me, but man, did I, did I do Leviticus 11 really well, didn't I? He's going to be like, that, that earned you nothing, dude. His point is Christ is sufficient. He's all you need. If, if, if both of us stand in front of Christ and, and, and I claim, well, I did this and that and this and I have a, a, a million things I did well and only 500,000 I didn't do well and you have a million things you did wrong and only 500,000 things you did right, does that make me better than you? Does that matter? It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant because the only ticket into heaven is the righteousness of Christ. The sufficiency of the gospel is all you need. So no matter how many goods and bads or laws I have or haven't done or whatever I did or didn't do on earth, my only ticket into heaven is the sufficiency of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when I stand before Christ and when you stand before Christ, our only claim will be the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul says, boast only in the crucifixion of Jesus. The point that Paul's making is Jesus is better than the law. The law was always pointing to something better. It was pointing to Christ. We see that in Hebrews 10, 40. I'm sorry, Hebrews eleven forty, that God has promised to us something better. And that's Paul's overall point. Christ is better. That's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. Christ is better. Nothing else compares. Even today's believers who have a Bible filled with commands and rules that we are demanded, to, demanded by God to follow, 
we can make those rules that we are supposed to obey in Christ. We're believers. We love Jesus. We obey his word. And we could even make those rules our God. We can become legalists with the rules as believers. We can start to feel as though God is more pleased in me when I follow his rules than in those who don't follow certain rules as well as I do. Now, I'm not saying that obeying God's commandments are irrelevant. Of course. The Bible's filled. We've been going over that for, Paul covered that for weeks that obedience to the, to the commands of Scripture are paramount for Christians. That if you're genuinely saved, you will grow in obedience. You will become sanctified into more and more obedience. So of course we follow the rules, but the rules don't save you. What I'm suggesting is that the commandments that we are to follow are like a shadow of Christ. The commandments are not Christ. They point us to Christ. We obey because Christ tells us to obey. Christ is the reason we obey, not the rules. The rules aren't the reason we obey. Me looking like a good Christian isn't the reason I obey. Me obeying because that's the only way God will be happy with me isn't okay. Why do we obey the commands in the Bible? Because Jesus tells me to. And because I love Jesus. And I love to serve my master. And I love my Lord. And because when I do, I become more like him. And I, and I know him better. And it serves me well. And it builds my desire for him. And it increases my joy. But it doesn't earn me any salvation. And it doesn't keep my salvation. He earned my salvation. And he keeps my salvation. And all I want to do is my part to become more like him. That's why I obey. Not because rules are rules and you have to follow them. I want to follow them because I love him and I want to be like him and he's pretty dope and I want to be dope like Christ. I want to know the things he knows. I want to think the way he thinks. I want to see the way he sees. I want to put on the biblical lens that Christ has and see the world through his lens. I want to have an, an apologetic answer for every, every argument against the gospel. And I want to, not only do I want to have that answer, but 1 Peter 3.15, I want to respond with the gentleness of Christ as well. I want to be like him in every way. I want to be like Christ when Christ says, I see the Father, like he knows the Father so well. There's such an incredible intimacy between him and God the Father. I want that intimacy. And I only get it if I'm like Christ and if I'm in Christ. And I want to, so I want to obey not because it earns me anything or it keeps anything from me because I, I want to obey because Jesus is just so awesome and he obeyed and I want to be like him. And the more I obey, the more I grow into that likeness. And the more I obey, guess what else I become? More arrogant. So the more I obey, the more sin shows up in my life. Just showing me that I could never do this on my own. Even as I get better, I actually get worse in a lot of ways. Show, revealing to me the significance of God's grace in Jesus Christ and my absolute dependence on the sufficiency of the gospel. Legalism can be tricky. The law fails to provide salvation. And it was only ever intended to point us to Christ. And to return to the law is slavery. Galatians 5.1 is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Do not return again to the yoke of slavery. Do not be a slave to the commands of the Bible. Be a slave to Christ. And when you do and when you are, the commands become joy. Let's not be legalists. Let's be joyfully obedient because we love our Lord. 
because we love Christ. Let's pray. Father, with great love for you, we come to you in prayer. Help us to follow your word with joy. Encourage us, strengthen us. Pray that you would help us reject any legalism that is going on in our hearts or minds or, or even in our community or in our church. Help us to focus on the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and his gospel. Not just for our salvation, but the sufficiency of the gospel and Christ for our sanctification. We love you, Lord, and pray that you would transform us into your likeness. Help us to know your word so well that we can view everything through the lens of your word as you develop in us a Christ-like worldview. Love your people, tend to your people, cherish your people, help us to serve and love one another like Christ does, sacrificially giving up, sacrificially serving the church, sacrificially going to church, sacrificially giving to the church, sacrificially loving one another, sacrificially giving each other things that we have that others need. Uh, We want to live lives of sacrificial abundance. We abundantly sacrifice. We don't just sacrifice enough. We sacrifice as much as we can, as much as we can with your wisdom so that others would see you and so that we would be more like you. And being more like you, we find joy. So give us that joy by making us like you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.